I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Managing Editor of Healthcare Info Security. Risk assessments are fundamental to information security and risk management. For the healthcare sector, risk assessment is a key compliance component of HIPAA and also the recently released final rule of the High Tech Act's Meaningful Use Stage 2 Electronic Health Record Incentive Program. However, Recent HIPAA compliance investigations and audits by the U.S. Department of Health's and Human Services Office for Civil Rights have found that risk assessments are often neglected by healthcare organizations. Frequently, these assessments are not timely or comprehensive enough. Today, we're talking to Kate Borton, president of information security consulting firm, the Marblehead Group. Kate will explain why risk assessments by healthcare organizations are often deficient. Kate will also explain the differences between risk assessments related to HIPAA versus Meaningful Use Stage 2. Hi, Kate. Hi, Marianne. When it comes to risk assessment, many healthcare organizations are lax. Why? Well, I think this is one of the most problematic or challenging requirements in the security rule. We get this guidance that I'll be talking more about from NIST, but it's a little bit hard to get your arms around. I think it's intimidating to many organizations, especially on the provider side when we talk about covered entities. They really haven't done anything like this before where it's been a very structured or formal process for routinely looking for information security risks and dealing with them. I think intuitively many IT people do this as part of their work, but very few IT people over the years have had this as part of their, their training to understand the terminology and so on. So I think it's there's a mental block because it's so vague in a sense. It's been very challenging. What are the key differences between doing risk assessments to comply with the Meaningful Use Stage 2 rule versus the HIPAA security rule, and what should organizations be looking for with each? First of all, it's a requirement for stage one as well. When you attest and you have to go online, and I say to people, you know, you're going to have to, even though it's online, it's not in, in, in a court or something, it's very serious. And so you have to attest in order to receive the incentive payments from Medicare or Medicaid. You have to actually say, yes, I have performed a security risk assessment, and I have addressed any of the security issues of significance. So it isn't just performing the risk assessment that's a requirement. It's finding the risks and then fixing them or mitigating them that you are required to basically legally attest that this is the truth. So it's a big deal. On the other hand, when the meaningful use regulations were written, the regulators fully understood that this is a requirement already. This is nothing new or different with meaningful use that they're saying to the organizations, we know you've been doing security risk assessments all along because this has been a federal regulation in effect since 2005. So come on, folks, you're doing this, right? So it's a little bit of a reminder or a wake-up call that organizations are supposed to be doing this. But I think the fact is that many, if not most, really aren't. Or they did it once way back in 2005 you know how new regulations come out and you ramp up and then you kind of shelve them and forget about them and they're dormant. So I think this is a, a jolt to a lot of organizations. But 
the actual risk assessment is really no different. The only difference is that when you're doing a risk assessment for meaningful use, the focus, the scope, the primary target is going to be that certified electronic health record, whether it's complete or module. You're going to be looking at that as the primary focus, but not exclusive. You need to be looking at the surrounding controls as well. So it's not limited just to what are the system controls within the CHR and have we implemented them in our organization appropriately. So one of the challenges, just to go back to your earlier point, why is it, why is it hard for organizations? Why do organizations struggle? One of the, one of the challenges is there's a lot of flexibility, uh, but you have to define the scope. Well, where am I assessing risk? You know, is it our entire environment or is it focused on a particular system? So just as internal auditors often use a process of rolling audits, this uh, quarter we're going to audit the such and such system or we're going to look at this department or whatever. In a practical way, a lot of organizations do kind of rolling risk assessment. So what's the target at this point? Well, when you're talking about meaningful use, incentive payments and the risk assessment, the main focus should be on that certified EHR, but again, not exclusively. Because encryption is an addressable requirement both in HIPAA and high-tech, organizations must document what other alternative reasonable measures they're taking to protect data if they choose not to encrypt. Can you provide some examples of circumstances when an organization might choose not to encrypt patient information? And what is the best way to document those reasons for such a decision? Well, let's start with talking about what addressable means. Many of us in the security world tear our hair out at this because it's often misunderstood. The proposed security rule that came out in 1998 did not include this concept of addressable when it came to encryption. It pretty much said, when you send PHI over the Internet, you got to encrypt it. Come on, folks. And I think uh, many of us wish that the final rule were a little bit more black and white about this. Addressable does not mean optional, and a lot of organizations continue to believe that that's what it means. But if you read the rule preamble and you listen to the folks who wrote these rules, that is absolutely not what it means. It just gives you a bit more flexibility. So much as I uh, wish they hadn't introduced this ambiguous term that is sometimes used as, a, as an out or a loophole, in, in the, the context, the way they wrote the rule for encryption, I think that it, is, it, it needs to be there. The fact is the security rule talks about requiring encryption in two separate places in the security rule. In one place, it talks about encryption of PHI, protected health information, as it's being transmitted, and in another place, it talks about encryption of PHI at rest, so sitting in a file or a database, something like that. So that's an appropriate division. The technologies we use are different. The uh, security risks are different under different circumstances. So when we look at, for example, uh, protecting PHI when it's being transmitted over a network, in general, the security rule would agree. What I always tell my clients is, at a minimum, your policy should say any PHI or other confidential information must be encrypted over the Internet and over wireless networks. We know that there is heightened risk by definition. 
over those areas. Those are public airwaves and the public Internet. So we have to encrypt because we don't own the airwaves. My organization doesn't own the Internet or the airwaves. So we have to add encryption as a way of, uh, as a method of access control when normal access control methods aren't in, within our ability to control. But I think transmitting PHI over your local network, I know of very few organizations that do that. It's not necessary. It's not practical. Not that there's no risk, but we have a lot of other tools that we can use to reduce risk of an, an inappropriate access or disclosure. So, for example, we use administrative and physical and technical controls on our own network, for example, policies and procedures that say you're not allowed to uh, mess around with our network, you have to have a unique user ID, you have to be granted access, you have to have, let's say, an Active Directory account and so on. And we have sanctions policies that say if you break the rules, you'll pay the price. We have physical controls, so we have locked data closets or network closets where the network equipment, things like switches that are so critical to uh, managing the network traffic are locked up and very few people have access. We have technical controls. We use those switches, for example, to create virtual uh, networks that make it harder for unauthorized snooping on the network, for example. So almost all of the controls that we put in place as part of good information security program will help protect that information on our local network where we have control. So I think that's what you point to in an addressable specification for uh, encrypting PHI in transmission, that you say, yes, in those areas where we can't control it over public air, so wireless networks, and over the Internet, we require encryption. On our local network, nope, we've got all these other things. So I think that's actually a, a good example when we talk about what is addressable mean and why do we even have it? And remember, too, that the government, much as I might criticize some of the rules, the government was in a tough place coming up with regulations that will apply to the enormous variety and range of capabilities of covered entities. So from a small doctor's or a tiny dentist's office that's a covered entity, where they have a couple of dentists and hygienists and secretary and whatever, they're not very sophisticated. They don't have the tools. They don't have the capability. They also don't have the same risk as a massive insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. They have much bigger risk, but they also have the resources. So in defense of these regulations, they had to be somewhat vague in these areas in terms of how an organization meets them just because of these huge differences. NIST recently issued a new guidance about risk assessments. What's the most important thing healthcare organizations should know about the new guidance? This is one of my favorite websites. I uh, strongly encourage anybody listening, if you don't know about this already, check out the Computer Security Resource Center, csrc.nist.gov. NIST is funded by our tax dollars. They fall under the Department of Commerce, I believe. And they write basically special publications, kind of white papers, on various security topics. And government uh, federal agencies are typically required 
to follow what these papers say. The rest of us in the private sector may or may not, but increasingly we are voluntarily adopting these. For example, in the HITECH Act and the regulations that came out on breach notification, there's a lot of intricate detail about what actually constitutes a breach that requires notifying patients and the government. And there are some safe harbors if, in fact, you have destroyed PHI, whether it's paper documents or electronic, following NIST recommendations. If you've been destroying your paper or destroying your electronic information following NIST, you're safe. You're in a safe harbor there, and, and you can say, no, no breach has occurred. The same with encryption. If you're following the NIST encryption recommendations, then you are safe. Now, we're not talking about NSA, DOD-level security here. We're talking about reasonable business-level security. And for those purposes, if you're following the NIST practices for disposal and for encryption, you're, you're doing a good job. You're fine. You're okay. So it's important that our organizations be very much aware of this resource, use it, develop our own policies, and choose our technical solutions, making sure that even if you really don't know anything about encryption, you better look for those magical terms, the, the names of the encryption algorithms that are being used. You know, you better see that they're using AES, for example, for symmetric encryption. So they are, they're very important. In September of this year, NIST released a revised guidance or a document on performing risk assessment. This is uh, NIST Special Publication 800-30 for those of you who want to go look it up. There has been an 800-30 on risk assessment for a number of years. They rewrote it. My sense is that the core content hasn't changed based on a lot of basic terminology and principles that have been around for a long time. But I think what has changed is maybe the tone of it is more business-oriented instead of government-oriented, perhaps, and it may be the tone and the presentation is, a, is just more accessible. So I strongly recommend that organizations go look this document up and read it. It's not that long. The content is only about 40 pages. There are only three chapters. There's an intro, chapter two, the fundamentals, chapter three, the process. So in the fundamentals section, and this is important, I think, for organizations of any type and of any size. This is what IT people just don't get in IT training unless they have some specialized security training. This is, I think, what's missing and when organizations struggle because they're not quite sure they know what they're doing. Understanding these terms. So risk is the result of a threat acting on a vulnerability. That's the basic formula. So some vulnerability or weakness in your organization's information security program. And remember, information security programs are comprised of administrative controls, such as policies and procedures and training, physical controls, making sure the network equipment is locked up, server rooms, and so on, and more, and technical controls, so passwords and firewalls and all sorts of other things, technically, encryption. So that 
all that full breadth uh, of the security program. So we look for weaknesses. Gee, we don't have any policy requiring encryption under those circumstances I mentioned earlier. Or, by the way, we don't encrypt our email. Well, maybe we better look at a technical solution there. And when we do that, maybe we need to provide training so that users know why it's important and how to use it. So finding the vulnerabilities that could be exploited. If you don't have a policy, somebody might unwittingly be transmitting PHI over the Internet that's not encrypted. So we need to identify those things. Now, back to the, the basics, the fundamentals. Threats act on vulnerabilities. Those are your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses. What are the threats? They're insider threats. They're disgruntled employees, outsider threats, the hackers on the Internet. But there are also missed says, three sources of threats. It's the people, and those by far the most difficult to deal with. But also we shouldn't forget natural and environmental threats, natural threats like storms. Uh, here comes a hurricane, and we're going to have flooding and power outages and so on. Just look at Katrina. Uh, the environmental threats, we have some localized problem of power outages, burst water pipes. So threats acts on a vulnerability to create a risk. The risk assessment process is identifying the threats, general threats and threats that might be particular or peculiar to your organization. And then, to me, the most important part of it is finding where you have vulnerabilities. Where do you have weaknesses and holes that could be taken advantage of? And when you identify a risk, which is just this a potential situation that would have negative consequences for you if it actually comes to be. When you identify a risk, then you weigh it on two different scales. First, you look at what's the likelihood of this event actually coming about. And secondly, if it were to happen, how bad would it be? What would be the criticality of it, the seriousness of the impact? You can imagine in healthcare, there are not hard numbers. This is all very soft stuff. It's all relative and it's all based on knowledge of healthcare organizations and how they operate as well as what risks and vulnerabilities are out there. We know by looking at the Health and Human Services Wall of Shame, for example, involving uh, breaches involving 500 or more patients or health plan members. And we see that one of the most common scenarios is a lost or stolen laptop or other portable device or portable media that has PHI on it that hasn't been appropriately encrypted. So we know that that's a high-risk area. Portable devices and portable media with our information. And by the way, I always say, don't just limit your policies and procedures to PHI. Expand that to cover all of your organization's confidential information. It's very likely that you're in a state that has a law that uh, that requires certain protections for uh, individuals associated names associated with social security numbers, for example. Make sure that you don't silo your security program and protections. So the risk assessment identifies risks, weighs them, and usually when I do risk assessment, I end up with high, medium, low. If you get more granular than that, it's really very debatable. There aren't hard numbers on in healthcare. And then the next step beyond risk assessment, as I said with meaningful use, 
you aren't expected to just do as well as a security rule. You aren't simply expected to do a security risk assessment. You then have to follow it up. Okay, here's the report of all the problems. What are we going to do about them? So each one, you need to make some decisions. What is it going to take to fix this particular problem? Well, you know, here's a system that has really poor uh, technical security controls, but we're on a path to replace it in six months. So we're not going to go back and change the technology. Maybe we will beef up some user awareness uh, and sensitivity so that the users can uh, take steps or be aware and, and uh, try harder to protect access to the system, for example. But if the system's going away, we're not going to invest a lot of time and money into changing it for bringing in something new. So each one of these risks needs to be accompanied by a business decision. Are we going to live with it? It is acceptable to say some risks we're going to live with. There is always risk in the environment. The challenge here is deciding which of these risks are too big to live with, and if they are, what are we going to do? Do we use administrative controls, physical controls, technical controls, combinations of those? What's the solution? What are the mitigating steps that we can take? And then you put action plans in place and carry those out. Simply doing a risk assessment without risk mitigation just doesn't make sense. So they go hand in hand. Uh, as I said, Chapter 2, the fundamentals, the terminology that I just talked about. Chapter 3 talks about the process and how do you get ready for and conduct a risk assessment. So discussing things like making sure you've decided, you've, you've identified and documented what's the scope of this particular risk assessment. What are we looking for? What tools are we using? Now, there's a lot of good information here but it doesn't provide a takeaway checklist. Uh, usually, unless you're a very small office, a checklist approach uh, by itself is not sufficient. Uh, certainly, checklists can help, can help uh, remind an organization these are, these are weak points, these are vulnerabilities that we should check and see, make sure that we're okay. But simply following a checklist to perform a risk assessment isn't sufficient um, in, a, in anything larger than a small office setting. So unfortunately, there's no uh, great master plan that you can simply take away from this and turn right around and start using. You do have to think about it, customize it to your own organization, and, and develop, essentially develop your own process based on these uh, terms and principles that underlie security risk assessment. You mentioned earlier that healthcare organizations often do risk assessments and then they put it on a shelf and forget about it. How often should healthcare providers do risk assessments and is the requirement different for high tech versus HIPAA? Well, this is uh, also a fuzzy area. The security rule says to do this periodically and as needed. So periodically might be annual or it might be every three years. It depends on how the organization handles its risk assessments. Uh, if you're doing every single system in the place, it might be on a rolling basis and you might not get back to assessing 
a particular system for a while. I think there is a lot of latitude in there. And I think as long as an organization takes it seriously and has a reasonable, defensible plan and they're following it, it's going to be okay. Uh, the other component is you're also supposed to do a kind of a, a spot risk assessment when something is changing. So you implement a new system. Uh, for many organizations that are seeking the meaningful use incentive payments, they have implemented a new EHR or maybe upgraded one that they already had. Well, even if you aren't uh, subject to the requirement of uh, attesting to a risk assessment, that would simply be good practice uh, following the security rule to say, we're bringing in a new system. This is an appropriate time or we're upgrading to perform a security risk assessment with the main focus being on this system and, and the things that touch it and access to it. So even if it weren't a requirement for meaningful use, you should be doing it for security rule compliance. So security rule compliance requires us to be doing this on some kind of periodic ongoing basis as well as when something changes. You acquire a new business or you start doing things over the Internet you haven't done before. So um, that's, that's a given. Meaningful use, it is hopefully one of the risk assessments that you were doing anyway as you implemented a new system, and you simply have to attest at the time that you are doing the other attestation for meeting the meaningful use requirements to get your, your incentive payments. So that's um, more of a one-off situation. So I think the message here is covered entities and their business associates, and in fact, any organization out there that has any sort of confidential proprietary information should routinely be doing risk assessment. So I think going back to this NIST document, I would recommend anyone in a position of responsibility for making sure this happens reads this and understands more about risk assessment and make sure that it's going on in your organization on a routine basis. This is not, it was never intended to be, we do it once and then forget about it. The environment changes constantly, especially in healthcare, especially in technology. And so the lesson is, keep it up, just keep doing it. Thanks, Kate. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee for Healthcare Info Security. Thanks for listening.